For thine, O Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Bibles are open to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, we're continuing our study about the armor of God. Let's follow along as we uh, read this paragraph and just we reacquaint ourselves with it. We're slowing down a little bit and we're kind of double-clicking a little bit more on some of these verses and diving into them a little more deeply. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. So follow along as I read. In fact, let's go ahead and stand together as I read our text. You know I like to preach a long time, so it's going to be a while before you get to stretch your legs. Be entering turbulence and the seatbelt sign will be on. Um, Ephesians 6, verse 10, we're standing to honor the word of God and stand under the word together. Listen to these words of God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, in high places, in the heavenly sphere. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, or in all things, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You you may be seated. I don't know about you, but for me, there is nothing more horrifying than feeling unprepared for showing up to class and realizing, oh no, there was a test today that I missed that I wasn't ready for, or coming to give a presentation and then finding out that your, your PowerPoint won't work or you left your notes at home. Or coming into work and finding out that there was a meeting that you were supposed to to lead and you didn't somehow get the memo. For me, there's nothing worse than standing up and feeling, I wasn't ready for this. Or having something happen, having a a hurricane come and hit and you weren't really paying attention and so you didn't go out and buy gas or you join all the people standing in line outside the gas station to fill up. That always uh, perplexes me. We're like, guys, we knew there was a hurricane coming for like a week. And we're waiting until like the day after to go get our gas. Come on, let's, we, can, we can do better. Nothing worse than being unprepared. Nothing worse than, than something catching you completely off guard. It becomes all the more dangerous when the thing that catches you off guard is not merely a hurricane or a presentation or a test. But when the thing that catches you off guard is a battle. Think about how horrifying it would be if you wake up one morning And there's tanks in the street, and there are soldiers marching down the road, and a battle has begun that you are completely unprepared for. It would be absolutely terrifying and absolutely horrifying. No army would ever consider it a good strategy, I guess except the, the Russian army, but no other army on earth would think it's a good strategy to send raw recruits who are unarmed into a battle. In fact, our military not only recruits soldiers, but sends them through six weeks of basic training and then sends them off to AIT to get a specialty, and they get all of this training, and then there is training after the fact, and training as they go along. Off they go on to drill. Even those who are in the National Guard, the weekend warriors, off you go to drill to to stay fresh and to stay on top of things. And when a U.S. soldier goes into combat, he's not just showing up in shorts and T-shirt and a pair of flip-flops. You see the U.S. soldiers, they're all decked out in in battle rattle. They're ready to go. When a U.S. soldier goes into combat, he's armed with the best weaponry, an M16 or an M4, depending on what they're doing. He's got Kevlar, he's got boots, he's got all of the equipment that is necessary. He's backed up by the most high-tech gear on the planet. He might even have night vision goggles. He might have the ability to paint a target for the Air Force to come in and, and and, and hit it. He's got a flak jacket. And depending on his location, he might even have a gas mask and and equipment in case there is some kind of biological agent. 
None of the equipment, by the way, that the U.S. Army wears is simply to look cool. They're not a bunch of guys who are living out their dream as homeschool kids to go out and look really cool and wear gear. It's equipment that has a purpose, equipment that's heavy. Just talk to guys who've served in the military. Say, if, it, if we didn't need it, we wouldn't be dragging it off with us into combat. It all has a purpose. It's all vital. Untold lives have been saved by, by Kevlar. And we look at the, you know, the Iraq war, and we have a little bit of perspective on that and the tragedy of lives that were lost. But compare that to a single battle of World War II, and the, the casualties are, are tiny compared to previous wars. Why? Because the equipment and the training has continued to get better. Our text is comparing the Christian life, we, we looked at this last week, to a battle. The Christian life is not a walk in the park, but it's a fight in the ring. It is a battle against a determined and a dangerous foe. And we saw last week that we have been given God's strength, verse 10. We are to be strengthened in the Lord, the power of his might. We need spiritual strength for a spiritual fight. We need the whole armor of God so we can stand against the wiles of the devil. So we have an, an enemy who is deceptive and is dangerous. And our enemy, according to verse 12, is not flesh and blood. It's not the, the, the lost people of the world around us. The enemy we face are not the folks you, you work with who don't know Jesus. The enemy we face, it's not the neighbor next door who is an agnostic. The enemy you face is not the people who are going to march in the pride parades. No, the enemy that we face is principalities, powers, a spiritual enemy. It is the deception and the hordes of Satan and the system that he dominates. We do make a mistake, I believe, a very dangerous mistake when we look at the lost as our enemy rather than the system to which they are captive. We sang just a minute ago, O Church Arise, we, we love the captive, but we rage against the captor. That's the attitude we need to have, is hating sin, but loving sinners to win them to Jesus. We do not look at the lost around us as the enemy. We look at them as the targets that we are sent to rescue. The sword that we, we wield, as we sang earlier, the sword of the Spirit is a sword that does not Wound so as to kill, but it wounds so as to heal. It kills so as to give life and to bring the gospel and the goodness of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs it. So we've looked at verses 10 to 12 last week. We now come into verse 13 and we get this discussion about the equipment that God has given to us. And you can imagine Paul as he is writing the letter to the Ephesians. He's under house arrest, has shackled to his wrist a Roman soldier, like right next to him. So you can almost see him be like, hey, dude, could you uh, let me take a look at that helmet for a second? Yeah, that kind of reminds me of salvation. He's got an object lesson right there next to him of a Roman soldier in the full panoply of his armor. And he's saying the, the equipment that we have as a Christian, what he earlier in the book called the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, it's like armor that we wear into a battle. Earlier he said the Christian life is like a walk. Here he says the Christian life is like war against Satan. So how can we be ready? How can we be equipped? How can we be prepared as we, every day, our feet hit the floor, and the floor that our feet hit is a battlefield? How can we be ready that every workplace we enter, everything we do, is contested territory, where the enemy is going to fight against us? Well, let's walk through this. There are, are a number of imperatives, a number of commands and directives that Paul gives to us, beginning in verse 13. Verse 13 says, take unto you the whole armor of God, and we'll, we'll unpack that in coming weeks. We're going we're to slow down and look at these pieces of armor. So take unto you the whole armor of God, the, the whole set of it, not just pick and choose like, oh, I like the sword, but the helmet's a little heavy. No, we take the whole thing that you may be able to withstand. The idea there is oppose in the evil day and having done all to stand. The first directive here is that we must prepare before the battle. Okay, just think about how absurd it would be. The bullets start flying, and the sergeant says, all right, guys, we need to start doing drill. Let me introduce to you the M16. No, 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 the time to do that is when you're at Fort Benning in basic training. When you're at Paris Island, that's when you do your training. You don't do your training when you first land in Vietnam. You don't do your training when you first show up to Afghanistan. You don't do your training when the enemy is at the gates. You train before the battle begins. We must prepare before the battle. Now, how can we prepare for the battle? Well, one of them is you need to read the intelligence report. One of, the, one of the ways that our nation is not caught off guard is we have a whole array of intelligence agencies, the CIA, the FBI, military intelligence, whose job it is is to make sure they know what the enemy are doing, whose job it is is to give early warning if a missile were to be launched, for example. 
So notice what verse 13 says. Take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. He's saying there is an evil day that is coming, a day of fierce battle, and we need to be ready for it. Now, what is the evil day to which he refers? Look back with me in Ephesians 5, verse 16. Paul had said there, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The entirety of the, of the age between the first coming and the second coming of Christ could be called the evil days. You might think, man, we are living in the most wicked time in human history. No, no, all of history has been wicked just in different ways. The wickedness of Paul's days, Paul's day in, in many ways eclipses the wickedness of our own. The violence and the oppression and the slavery and the sexual immorality of the Roman Empire is absolutely horrifying. All the days between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus are the evil days, the totality of the, the age. In other words, every day is war. Every day is war. Every day we step into a battlefield. Every day is a day when we must face down our flesh. We must face down, face down the, the lust that come at us through the world system, which we face down the devil. Think of it this way. Every day from September 1st, 1939 to I guess it would have been in, what, September 2nd, 1945, if that's the day where the instruments of surrender were signed. Every day of World War II was war. But it doesn't mean there was fighting everywhere in the world during that time, right? So we get here in Ephesians 6, the singular, the evil day. So there's the evil days, the war, but then there's the evil day, the particular day of battle. The term here in the singular, I think, is speaking of times when the church as a whole and where believers as individuals face the direct assault of Satan. Some people have compared war to saying it's, time, it's just intense boredom punctuated by absolute terror. So it's day after day of just marching, doing drill, nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, and then boom, there's an attack, and it's absolutely terrifying for a few minutes, and then it's the board. The Christian life is often like that. Satan is not attacking at full strength intensity to every Christian at every time. You can look through church history and see times where Satan unleashed the external attacks of persecution. So we should not think of all of church history as just unbroken persecution until 1776 and then the First Amendment. No, there were waves of persecution and waves of relatively, relative peace. We even see that in the book of Acts. There's the persecution Saul unleashes, and then Saul gets saved, becomes Paul, and it says then all the churches had peace. There's ten waves of persecution from the imperial powers during the first three centuries of the church's history. But those weren't persecutions everywhere in the Roman Empire all at the same time. There are waves. There's times of the evil day when the church in some places faces persecution. So this morning, Christians in China face direct persecution in a way you and I do not. Christians in North Korea face persecution. In fact, I just read a story that a Christian in North Korea was found with a Bible and their entire family was killed. We don't face that. The, the pressures that you might face in your workplace with Pride Month going on, yes, that's pressure, but I wouldn't call that persecution compared to I could be killed for owning a Bible, right? So there are times when the church faces a, a direct assaults like that. And I think on a perhaps a more individual level, uh, while we may not face persecution, we do. there are times in our lives where we face the assaults of Satan more directly. Is that not true? Are there times where you can look back and say, man, looking back, Satan was trying to destroy my faith during this particular event in my life. Satan was trying to get me down and to discourage me and was unleashing unique temptations that I normally don't face temptations like that, but in that moment, I was. So when Paul says the evil day here in Ephesians 6, I think he's referring to those times of unique temptation. You prepare for temptation now, not when the temptation arrives. Satan will come to us after the 40 days of fasting. He's good. He approaches Eve when she is seemingly alone. He sent Paul a thorn in, a, in the flesh in a moment of near despair. So think, for example, when you've recently lost your job or when the finances are tight, the temptation to make a quick buck illegally or to get paid under the table so you don't have to pay taxes, that's going to be higher than when things are going well. When things are tight, it's easier to maybe say, you know, I'm just not going to report that this year on my taxes. The IRS doesn't need to know about it. I pay them too much anyway. Or when you're physically exhausted, it's easier to give in to sexual temptation than when you are well-rested. When you're lonely, it's easier to give in to despair when, you are, when there's that gnawing sense of loneliness and nobody seems to know and the wolves of despair are sort of at the doorway of your heart. 
When you're depressed, when you are isolated, you're more susceptible to give in to the siren song of addictions. There's, there's, there's a direct link. People who give in to addictions often are in places of intense loneliness and despair. Satan knows that, the evil day when temptations will be more intense. And here's my point. We will only stand if we anticipate the evil day. If we think the Christian life, it's going to be great. I follow God. He blesses. It's going to be awesome. You will crumble like a newspaper if you expect the Christian life to be one of unbroken ease. We will surrender to temptation without a fight, without even a murmur of protest, if we never expect it. So Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, the one who stands, take heed lest he fall. Never think, I'm beyond the reach of temptation. I'm never beyond the reach of a sin that I used to struggle with. I'm never beyond the, the appeal of sins that certain people struggle with. We've got to be careful of that, by the way. We're in, in this month of pride to say, I thank you, O Lord, that I am not as other men are, those who wave the, the flag. Careful. If you stand, take heed lest you fall. We need to expect the temptation. Temptation will knock on your door. Hardship will surely come calling. Job says that man who is born of woman is appointed to trouble as the sparks fly upward. It is a law of nature. So how do we, how do we equip ourselves? Well, we look back to verse 13. There's the imperative at the beginning of the verse. Take unto you the whole armor of God. If you know the evil day is coming then take up the armor. If you know the evil day is coming, take up the equipment that God has given to us. God has provided the armor. We noted last week the armor of God in the book of Isaiah is the armor that Yahweh himself wears as the divine warrior. And so God is not just giving us something that he manufactured or prepared in a factory somewhere, but he is giving us of his very self. The armor that he gives us come from his very attributes. So the whole armor of God, it's fully sufficient to meet every challenge we'll face in our spiritual battle. Do you believe that? You know, a lot of Christians don't believe that. They don't believe that the armor of God is really quite enough. Say, well, you know, I I need the armor of God, but, you know, certain things, I I need a pill or I need a therapist or I need the, the philosophy of the world rather than, no, the whole armor of God. Do I believe that what God has given to me is sufficient for the spiritual fight that he has brought me into? When faced with the arguments of the secularist on TikTok, so many Christians lay aside the sword of the Spirit and instead pick up the flimsy dagger of their own reason, our own arguments. Hit with the blow of temptation, we take up the breastplate of self-justification rather than God's righteousness. Instead of saying, I'm standing in the righteousness of Jesus alone, we say, well, I'm really not that bad. Let me self-justify. Let me explain away why my sin is not as bad as other people's sin. When we see the sin in our culture so quickly, we want to grab the cudgel of political power rather than the sword of the Spirit. We need the whole armor, the whole counsel of God. Genesis to Revelation, not just a psalm here or there, not the verse in the daily bread or the verse of the day that you get from your your app. We need the whole armor of God, the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God for the fight. Do you believe that it is enough? If you do, take it up. You see, some people want to emphasize one part of the armor but not the other. Some people are really into, man, I love the end times. They just camp out in Revelation and Daniel and can tell you all of this stuff, but they neglect the weightier matters of the law. Others want to spend all their time saying, what does the Bible say about politics? And they just harp on that and park on that but neglect their own spiritual walk. Others want to just camp out in Psalms and see how the Bible speaks to their emotions but neglects the, the truth of the gospel. Others say, man, I love the stories, and I'm just going to tell the stories and rest in that and have a simple faith, but I don't want to deal with the heavy theology of Romans or Hebrews. Beloved, we need all of it. We need all of it. Don't become an imbalanced Christian who goes into battle with one piece of armor. We need all the armor. Don't emphasize one part of the gospel, the sovereignty of God in electing sinners. We believe it. We confess it. It's true but also the responsibility of man and the call of the gospel to whosoever will. Those aren't at odds. Take them both. We need truth and righteousness. We need a readiness to advance with the gospel and a faith to defend. We need both the defensive helmet and the offensive sword. We need both the emotion of devotion and the logic of doctrine. We need both to stand strong with reference to the enemy and kneel in weakness in reference to God. 
So we come on to the, the verse. Look back with me in verse 13. So you want to take the armor, the whole armor. Why? So you would be able to withstand in the evil day. The evil day is coming. You anticipate it. You take up the army, armor to, to be ready for it. And then it says this, and having done all to stand. That phrase always has, has puzzled me. I've memorized this as a kid. And having done all to stand. Like, what, what, what is the having done all? Okay, it conveys antecedent action. After you have done everything that is necessary, you will be able to stand. In other words, we're talking about training. Before the temptation comes, you have trained with all the weaponry. You've done everything necessary to prepare for the assault that is about to be unleashed. Put it simply, the only way to fight well is to train well. Athletes who practice hard play well under pressure. What happens when the athlete is under pressure and it's like, man, that's just amazing. That's so talented. No, that's the result of them swinging the bat over and over again and fielding ground ball after ground ball after ground ball that it becomes second nature. As Christians, we must practice with the sword of the Spirit to where the enemy assaults, we know how to wield it. We need to practice our senses according to the Word of God. That's what Hebrews tells us. So fighting temptation does not begin when temptations arrive. Getting in shape happens before the marathon. Training happens before the battle. Arming happens prior to war. Training does not happen when the bullets fly. When the bullets fly, instinct takes over. You're not going to learn any new theology when you're in the middle of an argument with your wife, right? And all of us are going to have times where you disagree with your spouse, but you come into that argument with the theology and the truth that you have learned already in the gospel. You don't gain sudden moral resilience when the lurid image comes across the screen and you're tempted, do I want to click to see more or am I going to shut it down? When the darkness of doubt begins to descend in your soul, Your faith does not activate like an automatic photocell unless the wiring has already been done. So Paul writing in 1 Timothy 4, he says, Timothy, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. He compares getting getting strong spiritually to getting in shape for the games, to going into the gym, to breaking a spiritual sweat. He says, bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. When it comes to defeating sin... Let me just shoot straight with you. There is no magic passcode or secret prayer that you give. There's no shortcut to success. There's not a pray the prayer of Jabez and you won't have temptation or quote Romans 6 and you'll never struggle again. There's no hot air balloon that you just get in and sort of float away in ease. We don't pursue godly, we we don't become godly through passivity. We become godly by pursuing godliness with all our hearts. We don't do these things simply when it's convenient or when it is appealing. Okay, so the definition of discipline is when you do something you know you need to do even when you don't feel like doing it. That's discipline. If I want to get in shape badly enough, I'll get out of bed and I'll go for a run. Even when I didn't sleep so well last night. Discipline is doing what you need to do even when you don't feel like doing it. And the Christian life is one of discipline. Some people will say, well, that's hypocrisy, living the Christian life when you don't feel like doing it. No, that's maturity. That's maturity. We don't pursue Christ simply when it's convenient. You don't just come to church when you're like, I had a great weekend, got tons of sleep last night. You come even when you're tired. You don't just read the Bible when, hey, I've got four hours of free time, so let me break out the the, the sacred word of God. Do it all the time. Most of the Christian life, just like being in the military, most of the time is spent training. A lot of it is monotonous and unspectacular and unmemorable. We're going to practice. We're going to shoot at that target one more time. We're going to do this march one more time. We're going to practice the maneuver one more time. It's coming to church week in and week out. And you may not look back and say, man, there's one sermon that changed my life. But the accumulation of hearing God's word begins to shape the affections of your heart. You may not have a mountaintop experience every morning when you do your devotions. And if you expect it, by the way, you'll be let down. A lot of days as I'm going to read the next three chapters of my Bible reading plan and pray for God to get it into my heart. Many of your prayer times, you will pray for the same requests day after day and not see the heavens open and manna falling from the sky. It is the accumulation of faithful training day in and day out. The Christian life, like an army, is ordinary people going to ordinary churches, engaging in ordinary devotions, committing to ordinary faithfulness in their homes and in their places of work. Do not despise the drudgery of discipline. For it is necessary, it could save your life. So what are the means of training? Let me just give you some very simple ones. 
How do we train? Having done all to stand, what are the disciplines that we get into our heart now that will prepare us when the assaults of temptation come? Well, one of them is simply Bible intake. If you're going to stand in the fight, you need to be in good shape. You need to be well-fed. You need to have good nutrition. The diet of the soldier of the cross is the word of God. That means you read the Bible every day yourself. It means you come to church so you can hear the Bible. There's a reason we've added a scripture reading at the beginning of the service and one in the middle of the service and another before the preaching of the word and then another before we go home because we need to hear the word of God. We need to hear it read. We need to read it ourselves. We need to memorize the Bible. We need to meditate on the Bible. We need to apply the Bible. Don't snack on random tidbits of truth, but rather get a well-balanced diet of reading the whole Bible. Let me add this as well. Chew the food. Don't just swallow it whole. Chew it. Think about it. Get it into your system. Here's a second way of training is prayer. He says in in verse 10, be strong in the Lord. How do I get strengthened? Prayer is one of the ways that I get into the spiritual gym and get myself in shape. Regularly accessing God's power, seeking his face, and invoking his promises. It is through prayer that we feast on the bread of life, Jesus Christ. We're nourished by his promises. We relish communion with our commander. Another way we can train Simply what what theologians call the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace. Coming to church, singing hymns, listening to preaching, partaking of the Lord's Supper are all the God-ordained ways of getting us spiritually in shape for the fight. You're only going to stand in battle if you prepare for the battle, if you anticipate it, and if you get in shape now. Joseph's decision to run out of Potiphar's house when Potiphar's wife threw herself at Joseph was not made in the moment. It was made decades before. And the decision to stand firm in the battle is made now, before the temptation comes. But let me come to a second directive here. We must stand in the battle. We prepare before the battle, but stand in the battle. This point is a little simpler here. Uh, Did you notice how often the word stand or withstand shows up in the text? Take the whole armor of God, verse 13. You may be able to withstand. So that's the word stand with the word anti in front of it in the Greek. So stand against, to, to resist. And having done all, to stand. And then verse 14, stand therefore. So there we get it as an imperative. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now the rest of uh, the armor of God section is simply showing what things need to be in place for me to stand. I need to have all the armor on so I can stand in the battle, so that I can resist. Let me make a couple of points here about standing. What is this metaphor conveying? Sometimes you might think standing, well, I'm just going to stand there. There we go. Well, this metaphor in a military context is the whole idea of being bold and courageous. In other words, standing is active. It's not passive. So we've got the power of God behind us and the forces of hell before us. And Paul says, stand. This is not passive waiting of just, I'm going to stand here and wait for Jesus to return. It's not standing like a wall. Rather, this is a metaphor for resisting Satan's attacks, for advancing into his territory with the gospel. Let me put it this way, inactivity is spiritually deadly. Oh, I'm just going to stand. I'm just standing. Jesus fights. I'm going to do nothing. Standing is active. Fritting our lives away before the TV. Fritting our lives away hunched over our phones, our thumbs scrolling. That's not standing. That's, that's being passive. Filling our minds with the world is a sure way to take the strength out of our stand. Winning the war is about being faithful in the unspectacular. Standing is active of saying, I'm going to actively, the things that Ephesians has talked about, let's not make this too complicated. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. That's how we stand, actively loving your wife. Actively loving the church of Jesus Christ has been purchased by his own blood and united of Jew and Gentile. The, the, The word love shows up repeatedly in the book of Ephesians, love for the church. Standing is going to war against the sexual temptation of our culture. That's Ephesians 5. It's exposing the works of darkness. It's active. Also add this, standing is determined. In a Roman legion, every soldier has their place in the line, and they would have multiple lines and how they would arrange, almost like a checkerboard, and they would actually put the veterans in the back and the newest soldiers in the front. And so when the new soldiers would sort of begin to waver, they would put the veterans in to be able to Uh, sort of plug the holes and send steel down the whole line. We're soldiers all taking our place. Every soldier has a role to play. The Greeks would have their phalanx, which would have multiple soldiers called hoplites, little round shield, big long spear, and it was like a porcupine of shields and spears pointing out. The fatal weakness of the phalanx is if one soldier got scared and ran off, 
it took away the integrity of the entire defensive line. Every Christian has their place to stand in the line. Each man is expected to do his duty, as, as Nelson said on the eve of Trafalgar. England expects every man to do his duty. And it's not my duty to do another man's duty. Remember John and Peter after the resurrection? Peter says, what will this man do? And Jesus says to him, what is that to thee? If he should tarry until I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Here's my point. Standing may look different in your life than it does in my life. And it would be quite legalistic for me to say, you have to stand in all the ways that I, ha- that I stand. We stand in different, different ways. And, and it's a good point to make this, this application. We're dealing with this, this month where there's this tidal wave of perversion in our culture and the celebration of sin in our culture. And some people say, well, Christians need to stand up and have a voice against this. I, I agree, Christians cannot be complicit with sin. But the way that each of us is going to take a stand against sin is going to look different depending on where we are and the level of influence we have been given. Here's what the danger is. It's easy to say every Christian needs to rush into every online fight that's ever existed, but then you neglect your own church. I'm going to abandon my place in the line of standing in terms of leading my family well, and I'm going to be really concerned about something happening in Washington, D.C. Your priorities are out of whack if you are neglecting the responsibilities right in front of you for ones over which you have very little control. Sometimes this comes in sort of the form of like the social justice language of there's some kind of injustice happening in our world, and the church needs to say something about it. Listen, the church can never be complicit with injustice, But it does not mean that every Christian needs to speak out on every issue that is happening in every part of the world, especially when my voice will do nothing regarding that issue. It's so easy in our online world to just throw a hashtag out there and be, I'm taking a stand. No, you posted a hashtag. It's not the same. So I just want to warn you, when we say stand, stand where God has put you. Don't feel like you need to abandon your post to rush to a skirmish on the other end of the line. Trust the commander to put the troops that he wants in that portion of the fight. It's legalistic. It is, it is, it is wrong for us to say that every Christian needs to stand in exactly the same way on every single issue and vote for every candidate on every ballot in every election to protest every police shooting, to boycott, boycott every woke company to take a stand against every social injustice. If you have the ability to to speak on those issues and God has put you there and given you the opportunity, by all means. But recognize the commander may have different people in different parts of the line to fight different parts of Satan's army. Don't denounce a faithful brother for not taking a stand on fair trade coffee. Right? Maybe that's where his concern is. Man, these farmers who are where I'm a missionary, I'm concerned about them. He's got the ability to do something about it in a way that I maybe don't. So be careful. Not every Christian must fight every fight. Not every Christian must participate in every protest. But every Christian must withstand temptation. Every Christian must advance the gospel. Every Christian must discharge his duty where the general has placed him. Every Christian must wisely steward his influence for righteousness. So if he's given you a particular stewardship, use it well. You will answer to him for how you did it. Every soldier has his own foxhole, and every sailor his battle station. Standing means manning my place in the line, line and doing what I can to further the gospel there. And so if I'm seeking to fight another battle and ignoring the one that my commander has given me, I've got it backwards. Stand, therefore. Now, standing is also hopeful. The one who ultimately wins the battle is our great general who has already conquered So this is not the stand in a hopeless last-ditch effort before an overwhelming enemy comes flooding in. This is not the Battle of Thermopylae where the 300 Spartans stood and, well, we're going to just lay our lives down to try to delay the enemy, but it's a lost cause. No, we win in the end. We win. Jesus comes back and he conquers. This is a stand that is hopeful, not a stand that is pessimistic. As I look around the church today, not, not, I'm not saying cloverleaf, but generally, there is so much pessimism and despair as look our culture and look what's happening. But look at what God is doing in other parts of the world. Look at the harvest of souls that is happening in the global south. Look at the sinners who are being saved through the, the efforts of missionaries the world over. Look at what God is doing in the lives of people around you within this church. Look at the, the, the great things that God is doing, and in the end, he wins. That's why we gather every week, is to keep the morale up. An army with low morale is easy pickings for the enemy. Great generals in history, like Napoleon, he understood how important morale was to the troops. 
It's an army marches on its stomach. He did everything to keep the morale of the troops up. We gather on Sundays to keep the morale high, to remind one another, beloved, lift up your heads, our redemption draweth nigh. And we should gather so much the more as you see the day approaching. I fear for Christians who neglect the assembling of themselves together because they're like soldiers who have wandered off from the platoon. They're like soldiers who have strayed out into no man's land by themselves. We need one another to stand shoulder to shoulder and to speak down the line, courage. We gather every week to remind ourselves of God's promises. We gather every week to remind ourselves of Christ's victory that's already been done and the supply of God's spirit that he has given to every saint. And when we see other soldiers celebrating our great general's triumph, our hearts swell with hope and with joy and gives us the backbone to stand. We hear, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We're reminded that we have all the strength we need for the fight in God's, as we stand in God's divine presence. So stand, therefore, in the battle. When the battle is raging the hottest, remember the outcome. But finally, we must equip for the battle. So we need to prepare before the battle the training. We need to stand within the battle the courage and knowing what is going to happen in the end. Knowing that I don't have to fight every fight that exists out there. I fight the fights that God gives me to fight. But we must equip for the battle. Verse 14, stand, therefore, now, how? By what means? Having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what we begin to get is the cataloging of six pieces of armor. And each of them is a metaphor for some spiritual reality we have. We'll look at the first two today. And then we'll look at, in turn, in coming weeks, the, the other ones, and then diving into prayer at the end. The first one here is the belt of truth. Now, the word belt's not used, but the idea of girding the loins with truth. It's a metaphor or an idiom used in the scripture of be ready, having, the, having your belt on, having, the, having your loins girded up. Okay, you think about in the ancient world, you have this big, long robe. If you imagine trying to run in that or fight in that, it's not going to work super well. So what they would do is take the excess fabric and pull it up into their belt and tuck it into the belt so that they were ready to be able to move and be, be mobile. So to say your loins girt with truth is to say you're ready, you're dressed, you are prepared. Paul's looking at the, the Roman soldier's standard equipment as this illustration. Now, we shouldn't get too crazy here with the allegorizing of the details. And we'll say the, the breastplate of righteousness, and it covers your heart, and God's righteousness covers the heart, and it's a breastplate and not a backplate. We're not meant to read too much into this. This is an illustration, not an allegory. Just a, It's like this in some ways. So we get the belt of truth. So be prepared. Brian read first. Peter 1.13, gird up the loins of your mind. That's prepare your mind for action. So much of the battle is going to be fought in the battlefield of your mind. The other thing of the Roman soldier's belt, it's what held all the rest of the armor together. Everything else is kind of hitched to that belt. Truth is essential to hold all of this together. Listen, if we don't have a word from God, if we don't have the truth of God, we don't have ground to stand on and we don't have any ability to tie our armor onto our bodies. So what's the spiritual resource that ties the armor together that says we're ready for battle? The answer is truth. Truth. Now, we can understand this in two ways. It could be what you call objective truth. Simply, this is what is true. This is what is right. This is, this is what accords with reality. This is what is coherent with itself. What is objectively true could also be subjective. The idea of honesty just across the page in Ephesians 4, Paul said in verse 25, put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. I think we're dealing more with the objective reality of truth. Why? Because this is armor of God, something God has given to us. God has given to us his truth. He has given us a revelation of himself in the creation. We can see so much true about God in the creation. He's given us a revelation of himself in his word. And he's given a revelation of truth in his son who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the book of Ephesians, truth can refer to the message of the gospel. Look back with me in Ephesians 1, verse 13. He says, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, comma, the gospel of your salvation. So in the context of Ephesians, the word of truth is the message of the gospel, of what God has done for us in Christ in sending Jesus to die on the cross for sinners. Let me just say this as an aside None of what I have said this morning is even remotely useful or applicable to you if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to stand for righteousness in the army of Jesus. It's only true if you have become a soldier of the Lamb. It's only true if you have come over from the side of standing in Satan's ranks to the side of standing in King Jesus' ranks. And the way that happens is by hearing the message of the gospel that I am a no-good sinner who has violated God's law, that I'm a rebel and a lawbreaker and under the dominion of Satan that I'm dead in trespasses and sins. It only comes when I put my trust in the one who died for me and rose again from the dead. That's what brings me over to the side of Jesus. It's receiving the belt of truth, girding it on our loins by faith in Jesus. Jesus says in John 8, you will know the truth, and the truth shall what? Shall make you free. In John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them by thy truth. What does he identify the truth as? Thy word is truth. So we can't separate this idea of truth from the revelation that God has given to us in Scripture. We don't have to wonder what is true. We live in a world where nobody seems to know what is true, and everybody has a narrative of what they want to believe, and truth is determined by, does that agree with my narrative or to the the partisan view that I'm holding to? Truth is what God has said, and this is the measure of what is true. Now, it is true to say that my interactions with truth will make me more truthful. Someone who loves the truth should speak the truth. It's a contradiction to say, oh, I love the truth, but I'm going to lie in advancing the truth. That doesn't make sense. Truth is the totality of God's self-revelation of himself in creation, in Scripture, in his Son. It's not just the isolated threads of individual facts, but it is the woven tapestry of all of them brought together. It's the harmonious whole of Christian truth. I'm concerned that so many Christians don't know theology. Say, what do you believe about the Trinity? Or whatever my church said. Okay, why do you believe what you believe? Do you have a coherent, unified understanding of the truth? Not just I've read the Bible here or there and I understand a few things and I have a bumper sticker on my car, but do you understand the teachings of the Christian faith? It's a unified worldview. It's the harmonious whole. We need to have a coherent Christian view of the world. When I say that, I'm talking about the assumptions we have, our way of looking at things. Readiness for battle, putting on the belt of truth, means being deeply familiar with both the storyline of the Bible and the content of the Bible and the conclusions of the Bible in regards with how they intersect with my life. More technically, it's knowing biblical theology, the story of the Bible, and systematic theology, the conclusions that come from that. But that's not the only aspect of the belt of truth. The belt for the Roman soldiers is not just like putting on my leather belt from, you know, from Dillard's. But it also include the, the leather apron that would protect the thighs. It was that leather apron worn by the Roman soldiers to protect the thighs. It's not just decorative, it's protective. We put the belt of truth on before the fight. Satan, we have learned, is deceptive and he is cunning and he has hurled heresy after heresy at the church. And it's only if we know the truth that we will be ready to fight his lies. When God's truth touches our souls, when truth captures our affections, we are so fundamentally changed that we become purveyors of truth. So we can't claim to be champions of the truth when we play fast and loose with the facts when it suits us. When we only accept headlines that support our narrative, when we let the, whatever is happening in the culture determine what we believe, we've got to let the word do it. But the second piece of armor we're going to note here is the breastplate of righteousness. The Roman soldier, the next piece of armor he would put on would be a brass piece of metal that would protect the front and the back, protect those vital organs. Be like the modern soldier putting on his flak jacket, putting on the flak vest, the bulletproof vest, so to speak, to save his life. It's a life-saving piece of equipment. So what is righteousness? Righteousness, beloved, is the absolute perfection of God. It's not just being better than, well, at least I thank you, O God, I'm not as other men are. Righteousness is what God is. Absolutely, stunningly perfect and sinless. He is the very standard of right. And yet the Bible says, All our righteousness says filthy rags in God's sight. The best day you have ever had on this planet is like bringing to God filthy, disgusting rags. It's bringing to God used toilet paper. To use an image there maybe makes you recoil. That's your good works in God's sight. 
the, the breastplate of self-righteousness is like putting on sort of a, a piece of newspaper and being like, yeah, that's going to protect, stop me from the bullets. It won't. Our own righteousness cannot save us. Our own righteousness cannot make us righteous in God's sight, bring us justification. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They've together turned aside. They together have become unprofitable. There's no one that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Beloved, that's every single one of us. That's you. If we're going to have the breastplate of righteousness, it's not something, it's not going to be my own righteous deeds. It's not going to be me being like, man, I, was, I did my devotions, I checked off these boxes, I went to church, and here's my righteousness, Lord. No, the only righteousness that will protect us in battle is the armor that has been forged in the foundry of heaven. The only righteousness in which we can be dressed are the robes of the spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only righteousness that will satisfy a holy and just God is absolute and perfect conformity to his law in deed and in desire and in motive. The only righteousness that we can claim is the righteousness that we can have by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by what? Faith. Romans 4, 5 declares to us very, very clearly, this righteousness is not by works. Titus 3, 5 says, it's not of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Philippians 3, 7 to 9 says, the, when we come to Christ, we cast aside all claims of being righteous ourselves. Paul says, I, I, those, things, what, those things that were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is by the faith of Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. That's it. That's the only thing that will protect you in the fight against Satan is the imputed righteousness of Jesus to your account. And if you're here today and you're claiming even one shred, one iota of your own righteousness to save you, you are lost in your sins. If you're claiming the fact that I was a good church kid or I've always been in church or I was baptized, you're going into battle completely unprepared and the arrows of the evil one will strike you down. This divinely sourced breastplate, the good news is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have it. And so Satan will shoot his flaming arrows of accusation at you. Hast thou considered your servant, my servant Job? God asks Satan. Satan says, does Job serve God for naught? When Satan comes waltzing into God's presence and accuses you and me, when Satan accuses your conscience to say, you don't really deserve to be a child of God. When Satan whispers to say, look, you failed in this way again and, and tries to question, make you question and doubt whether you were in Christ. If you have the breastplate of righteousness, those arrows will clink off you. They won't pierce. When Satan fires those darts of accusation, do they clink off or do they pierce with deadly effect? Does guilt and doubt plague your conscience? Does Satan tempt you to despair and tell you of the guilt within? You know what you do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. 1 John 2 verse 1 says, If any man sin, speaking of Christians, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the propitiation for our sins. When Satan accuses us, he comes before God's throne and says, look at that Sinclair guy again. There he is being prideful. There he is being hypocritical again. There he is being less than honest again. There he is getting frustrated at his wife again. Jesus comes to my defense and he doesn't say, no, 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 Satan, you've got it all wrong. Sam's a real upstanding guy. He says, no, he's a sinner. And every one of his sins that he has ever committed, I bore on the cross myself and I satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus doesn't come before the Father with a stack of legal documents outlining what a good guy I am and how useful I am to the kingdom. He comes with one claim and one claim alone, a piece of paper, as it were, that says, to Telestai, it is finished. So think about how the breastplate of righteousness can take down one of Satan's most potent Attacks, the attack of guilt, the attack of doubt, the attack of questioning. Am I, have I been really good enough? The only righteousness I have is the righteousness of Jesus. And when Satan accuses, that's what I look to. 
Now, when we have been given the perfect righteousness of Jesus, it does change the way we live. So do not hear me as saying, as long as you've trusted in Jesus, you can go live like the devil and be fine. The book of Ephesians will talk about righteousness, which is a way of life for the Christian, back in Ephesians 5 and verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. If you've believed in Jesus, it should and it will and it must change your life. We must clothe ourselves daily in the righteousness, as it were. It's been imputed, it's already mine, but now I say, I, in God's eyes, I'm already righteous and perfect. I'm dressed in the very righteousness of Jesus. And the rest of the Christian life is saying, that's who I am, and I'm going to become who I am. In God's eyes, I'm holy and without blame before him. God, by your grace, would you help me to live as if I'm holy and without blame before you in love? It's our responsibility every day to remind ourselves of our righteous standing before God and to live like it's actually true. That means the gospel is not just this message you believe the gospel and then leave it in the, the rearview mirror and go on with your life as one of works. Every day, the gospel is what motivates us to live a holy life. The, so, the Christian is a soldier, not a king. We don't have courtiers who come and array us, and there's no helots to buckle on our armor for us. He says we, we must take on the armor. We must daily appropriate that righteousness to our hearts. You see, nothing brings more shame to the cause of Christ than unchristian Christians. No, nothing brings greater repute to the gospel than Christ-like Christians. So live a righteous life. I mean, righteousness that should mark your speech. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, Ephesians has told us, but rather that which is edifying. Righteousness should mark our demeanor, put all anger and bitterness and yelling away, but be kind one to another. That's righteousness. Righteousness must define our thoughts, our motives, our desires, every area of our lives. That's the breastplate of righteousness. You wouldn't enter battle without it. So every day, beloved, we enter the battle. It's going to come. If you're a believer in Jesus, the evil day is going to come. We are in the midst of the evil days. We're in the midst of war. Not against the culture, not against the lost, but against the forces of Satan as he attacks us and tries to peel us away from the, the battle line. So are you ready? Are you preparing now before the battle comes? Or is passivity marking your life? Are you standing in the midst of the battle of actively trying to advance the gospel of saying, what influence has God given to me? How can I steward that well? Are you dressing every day for the battle? Every day saying, God, put on the belt of truth. Remind me again of what is true. Every day putting on the breastplate of righteousness, of looking to your justification in Christ and not your own good works. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Father, help us, O oh God, to stand